as I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through verses 40, verse 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Just as I have proclaimed from the Romans passage that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Father, we pray now that we could continue to be counted amongst those in this hall of faith by the hearing of your word, the very word of Christ. It is only in your word that there is power, only in your spirit that we can understand And live in that power. Help us, Father, this day to do so now as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the close of this very popular passage, this passage of the Hall of Faith, and it seems to funnel down in a way, it seems like that maybe the pastor here, the preacher of to the Hebrew Christians, it almost seems like he's running out of time. He's like, oh, you know, I was going on and on about these others, and now I've got to kind of wrap this up. But no, I think that is, there's so much that he could go on and on about. But I think he's telling us exactly 
what we need to know and to equip us and to prepare us and to encourage us to take on the calling that we have as they have the church calling to proceed on. And we see here that there is a dilemma. There is a challenge. It ends maybe not like how you would expect it to end. You would almost want to say, you know, if we could have just maybe taken out that last paragraph and a half there, or if we would have just brought it a few sentences back, it would have been best to end. Couldn't we end this sermon on resurrection? Most good pastors want to end their sermons on the resurrection. It is one of the most hopeful ways to end. We want to end in the hope of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We don't want to leave the sermon with him just being in the grave. And then we want to look forward to our own resurrection. But here, this particular preacher to the Hebrews leaves us with this tremendous tension that as he's given us these glorious things that the Lord's people were able to see accomplished through them in faith, there's this kind of jarring transition right after it says that the women received back their dead in resurrection. It starts going in another totally direction of tremendous suffering and persecution. And then this particular sermon is landing in a place where it says, and they did not, even though they had faith, They did not receive the promise. Now, thankfully, he does not end on that particular sentence, but it says so that there would be something better for us. And it draws in the audience. It draws us in. And it's saying that all of this suffering, all of this difficulty, all of this persecution is because the Lord's not done yet. He has got more people that he is going to bring in into his kingdom for something even better, something better than all of the things that preceded the suffering, all of the conquering and all of the victory and all of the enemies of this earth being defeated. There's something better that he is going to bring us all into this place together in a place of perfection. But it still kind of leaves us. I would admit to myself that it leaves you with this tension that there's three particular things that it leaves this tension. You know, what about the promises? Why did these people not get to enjoy the promises? And what's up with all this persecution? Why, why can't God order this in a way that could just avoid the persecution? Seems to me he's all-powerful. We can see this in his word. Something that we proclaim. We believe that he created all things, that he's all-powerful. Why all of the persecution? And then we also see, just in this particular transition from Moses to Joshua, we're like, well, what about the people that didn't enter into the promised land? The, The gap that we don't see here in just the space that's in the paragraph in your Bible there, from going from the narrative talking about leaving the Red Sea, we see a lot of things going on as they are wandering in the wilderness, and even, where's Moses? As they now are entering into the promised land, 
Moses is not there, but instead, Joshua is there. And we think, what happened to his people? So what happened, (laughs) that's something that Jackson is called on to us whenever he hears a particular noise or something, even sometimes when someone sneezes or does something, he'll say, what happened? <laughs> and we're left here too, like, what, what happened here? What happened to the people of Israel? If you go back and you read these stories, you'll see that only two people that were there with Moses goes into the promised land. Quiz time. Who are those two people? Who are the two people that got to enter into the promised land from the original group of people who went through the Exodus? So we are leaving with the Exodus, and then now we're entering into the promised land with the first city being Jericho. Who were the only two that made it into the land of promise? Joshua, which is who I've already given you that name, so that's a softball. So anybody want to go for maybe a curveball? Who? And Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Where did everybody else go? What happened? What happened to the people of promise? And why are all of these people going through persecution? Got your three P's there. Where is the promise? Where are the people and why is this persecution going on? And we have to rewind a little bit now and remember the whole reason why this particular letter is written to the Hebrew Christians is one, to magnify and proclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ and to encourage his people to press on, to draw near to the Lord, trusting in Christ, to press on, holding fast their confession of faith without wavering, and to stir one another up in the assembly of his people for good works and serving the kingdom, to do so in the midst of persecution. This is why this letter was written, was to encourage the Hebrew Christians that have this great heritage and history that can also, based upon the word of God that they have had proclaimed to them, they can remember those particular stories. And they too would possibly, like us, would say, what happened here? And even now, as they are called to trust the Lord, to follow after Jesus in the midst of persecution, this is post-resurrection, post-ascension. You would think the game is over. Jesus said it was over. Why are we going through this persecution? Why are those in the church sometimes wavering? That's one reason why this letter had to be written is because people can be deceived. People can be disheartened and they can fall away. And so the question could be, what happened to the promises of the resurrection of Jesus? What happened to the people of Jesus Christ? And why are we dealing with all of this persecution? In many ways, my sermon may not be able to answer that in its fullness. But I pray that today, as we consider God's word, that it will answer for us that we can trust the Lord. I don't know his ultimate design and wisdom and why he lays things out the way he does. And it doesn't necessarily give us like the whole depths of the layers of like why this way and why not that way. Why didn't God just create people that never would sin and we just 
all just be happy all the time. You never thought about that? You ever thought about why there even had to be Adam and Eve in the fall? Why did people have to die? Why all these, we have all these questions, you know, and that's a good thing, you know, even little kids, and we have that with us ever throughout our whole life is why, why, why? But I hope that I can answer the question of what you can trust in, who you can trust in. And that is what this letter is for, and this is what this sermon is for, is to encourage you to trust in the Lord that he has kept his promises. He has a purpose for the persecution, and he will preserve and he will keep his people. The story that we have here with Jericho is a fun story. Another quiz, what, without, instead of my children can't answer this one because we talked about this at breakfast today, what caused the walls of Jericho to fall? God's power. That was the answer, I think it was Jim, Andrew said, God, that's the great Sunday school answer to a lot of things, you know, other than who's evil or who's bad. <laughs> you, know, you don't ever want to answer God to that one. But when it comes to anything, it's like, God, God made it. And it's very clear in the story. Now here it says in the passage here that it says that they circled seven times, and that's what caused it to fall down. It says, by faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, it doesn't necessarily say because of. It says after they had done that. And that was done because of obedience. They were told to do that. And if we actually think about this story, and I'm not going to try to go against the flow of the writer to the Hebrews too much here by trying to give a little bit more detail here. But you have to keep in mind that the Hebrew Christians had these stories deeply rooted in their mind. But I do want to highlight a few things that are very significantly important about the story of Jericho. That it is God that calls the walls to fall down. But the instruction that were given to the Israelites to walk around Jericho seems a little silly, if you think about it. Seems a little ineffective. They were told to walk around for seven days, each of the first six days, to walk around one time. What, was, what else was with them? This is going to be a little bit of quiz. We're going to have to go quick there. So what else was with them when they were walking around Jericho? What did they have with them? Trumpets. What? Trumpets. Trumpets. Well, they said a compass. And I was like, <laughs> like, no, I don't, maybe. I don't know. So they had trumpets. They were playing trumpets. What else did they have with them? What's, what was behind the trumpets? They had the Ark of the Covenant, and so they had the proclam- They had some noise, they had some proclamation and praise, and then they had God's word, they had his covenant, they had his promises inside of the Ark of the Covenant, and they were marching around. Well, for the first six days, what were the people of God doing? They were supposed to be quiet. They were marching and being quiet. And then on the seventh day, they were to go around seven times. And on that last lap around, Joshua said... When I, when, I give them, when I give the note, just scream, <laughs> shout out, and the walls went down. And, you know, you could think about it and you go, well, maybe it was like they, maybe they were confusing them for a while, and then somebody was going in there, and they were setting up detonations under the building, and, and then maybe the noise kind of was so loud, they were such loud singers that just cracked the walls. 
But if we rewind a little bit, and if you would, if you have your Bibles, turn quickly to Joshua chapter 5. I'm not going to do a whole sermon on this. I promise I'm going to try to keep this going quickly. This is so important that we understand what was going on here as we go into Jericho. As the people of God are now finally entering into the promised land. And we have Joshua and Caleb leading the way. And we have the people of God and they encounter Jericho. And Jericho was a, a strategic City, And they had to deal with Jericho for them to feel confident to continue on because it was a very fortified city. And if they kept on going past Jericho saying, you know what, we don't really have time to deal with Jericho. We're just going to keep on going into the promised land. It would open up their vulnerabilities behind them and they could be attacked. So they had to deal with Jericho. They had to annihilate it. They had to defeat Jericho. But it was very fortified. It was a very big challenge right off the bat. But in Joshua chapter 5, Starting with verse 13, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This encounter with Joshua, with the commander of the army of the Lord, is really the centerpiece here of entering into Jericho. Now, I don't know in the Lord's wisdom why he didn't display the commander of the army in front of all of the people of Israel. And that Joshua had to take the instruction and go from there. But as he is the one who is leading This was the most significant component of assurance for Joshua and for all of Israel that they can enter in to this promise and they will not be defeated. Joshua had already trusted the promises of the Lord and he had seen the weakness of Israel and the failing away of God's people even in the past. And he trusted the Lord and he recognized from the proclamation here, didn't recognize him at first, But that when this particular man responded no to his double ant question and said, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, he knew that he was talking to someone at minimum had the authority of God himself. Now, it leaves us very similarly with Melchizedek, with who is this one? And and in this particular case, we can have with some assurance that it is likely the pre-incarnate Christ because it doesn't seem to be just a typical angel. Because what do most angels say when one of the Lord's servants falls at their feet? It tells them not to be afraid. What else does he tell them? Good answer. Not the one I was looking for. Get up. Don't worship me. But this one says something different. Just take off your sandals. Take off your feet. 
And I would say most commentators at least lean in the direction that this is Jesus himself that's going to be the one who's going to take Jericho. It is God. And because it is God, they can draw nearer into the promises of God with confidence that the walls of Jericho, they can simply just obey the commands. What might seem to be very silly and very ineffective, they can trust the word of the Lord, and that's what they did. They had the word of the Lord marching in front of them. They had the praises and the trumpets, and they just remained silent. They were completely disabled from doing anything according to the strategies and the ways of man. They were trusting fully in the Lord. And only giving him praise and shouting proclamation. Trusting the word of God. We could just end the sermon right there. That's pretty good right there. Because Christ has already done the work. He's going to do the work. He just tells us to follow him and to trust him. And the walls fall down. We would like for that to be the end of the story for us. Well, the commander came in. He took care of everything. we're, We're done. We're good. But we see here right after the little small one verse narrative of Jericho, we see by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. If we turn to Joshua chapter 6 real quickly, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord had given you the city, and the city and all that was within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only, and this is uh, fast forwarding over to, I think I'm already in verse 16 and eight through 18, only Rahab... The prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she had hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest you have devoted them. You take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Before, if you flip back, a few verses, a few chapters to Joshua chapter 2, you will see that as they were spying out Jericho before they went and did the things the Lord told them to do around Jericho, they had encountered this one Rahab. And as the spies were dealing with some difficulties, Rahab helped hide the spies. And then Rahab made a proclamation and a participation in helping out the spies. And then she said to the men, this is in Joshua chapter 2, 9 through 14. And this is, this is her confession of faith. It says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now she hasn't met this commander of the Lord, but she's heard about the things that the Lord has done. And it says, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God... He is God. 
in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And you will give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell us this business of ours, then, I, then, we, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Her proclamation of faith was an entering into the covenant with the God. That your God is the God is such a crucial component. She recognized the power of the Lord, not just in what had happened in these particular battles from the Israelites, but she realized that this God that they worship, that they follow, is the God of all creation, heaven and earth. And that's such a crucial component. Because we live in an age of today where, again, people are like, I don't know. Or, yeah, maybe he's over there, but he's not really doing anything here. He kind of set things in motion and he walked away. This particular confession of faith from Rahab goes so much further than what many people in our culture do today. And she knew that God's people would not be ultimately defeated. Surely she had heard of other stories of where, she heard a lot here. She's probably heard of stories where there were failures amongst the people of God. But she recognized the power of God. So one, we see there in the beginning with the proclamation in Hebrews here about Jericho falling, we have this strong assurance that because of the commander of the Lord's army, they can have every bit of confidence to draw near into the Lord's promises. And then secondly, we see here that the confession that Rahab had about responding to the power of God, that by holding fast to that without wavering, even at the risk and the persecution of her own life and her own household's life, she trusted that the people of the Lord's army would survive this particular encounter. Even when odds didn't look like it. Can you imagine what she would have been thinking and doing as she watched them walking around Jericho? Seems to me that she would have been trusting. She already knows how fortified this particular city is. She trusted in the Lord without wavering and did not tell on the spies and kept her word trusting in the keeping of ultimately the word of God. Do you know the term Nemo Residio? It's Latin. It makes me seem smart when I say that. I wish I knew Latin. Most of you know most of, a lot of Latin because you speak it a lot already in your English. And so if you think about the word residio, it's, compare, it's like the word residual. And if you think about residue, you know, when we came into this building, we had lots of residue, you know, lots of things left over. It was from, from mold. You know, it, left, it leaves, when it's growing, it leaves all kinds of marks. And is, Nemo residio means no one left behind. It's a fairly popular um, Latin term that's in the military. 
It's in a lot of creeds. It's sometimes put into um, different kinds of um, crests and different you know, marketing for the military. No one left behind. Today, the phrase is often attributed to the elite U.S. Army Rangers, which is the elite group of the Army, and it goes all the way back until uh, even before the founding of the country, there were Rangers when we were English, when we had the Union Jack flying. There was uh, the, the Rangers of that time, the Queen's Rangers or the King's Rangers. There was a guy named Robert Rogers that led that particular group, and it was a motto of theirs, even though it's an ancient idea that goes way back you know, in military understanding, even beyond the families of America, that Robert Rogers, he made it a, a motto of theirs as well, as they were this specially trained group in the military, they were rangers that were using unique types of tactics and training to fight during the French and Indian War. Of course, he stuck with the British as they went on, but others have also adopted that, and even the, the rangers today, and, and, and the, just the, the army itself. Similar language can be found in the soldier's creed. It says, I will never leave a fallen comrade. It's also in the airman's creed. I will never leave an airman behind. This Nemo Residio is even the motto of the Marine Corps Personnel Retrieval and Processing Company, the team charged with retrieving the remains of fallen service members from the battlefield. No one's going to be left behind of the people who are part of our team. And it's a very strong thing that people are willing to go back into the line of fire to make sure that everyone is accounted for and brought out. And I see here in this particular case, when we're thinking about the questions of why have the promises seemed to be delayed and why have some of the people fallen away and why all of the persecution, I see here that in this particular passage that we see that the Lord is victorious in a way we see as we go into this next section of passage that there is great victory occurring. And a lot of times when there's victory, you move on to the next stage, but there are wounded people behind her, and you cannot leave until you bring everyone with you. And what we see here in this particular passage, as I will go through this fairly quickly, is that there, it is narrowing down that there are still a remnant of people that the Lord wants to bring into himself. We see that with the destruction of Jericho, that those who hold on to the confession of the Lord without wavering have a reason to hope that they're not going to be left behind. Rahab was seeing what was happening as the Lord was destroying Jericho. And then as the Lord's people entered in and were told not to leave anyone alive except this one who was in covenant with the Lord. Because she and her household now were a part of them and they were not going to leave her behind. They were going to fulfill their promise and their proclamation that they would preserve her and save her. And the amazing story with Rahab is that we know that she is an ancestor of the lineage of Jesus Christ. That she gets married in we're assuming that she gets married in with the people of God because she only left with her household. And there's even some speculations of different individuals in Israel that she actually married into. And then eventually 
her line led to the fulfillment of the promises of our ultimate Savior. We see in this story, as we look at it from our perspective, that the Lord had kept his promises. And that's the point of this particular passage for us, is that we have this in the back of our mind, but it's important for us to remember that they didn't have all of the fleshing out of those particular promises, that they had to trust the Lord's word. They had to trust without seeing. Not everyone got to see the commander of the Lord's army, and none of them knew the name of Jesus Christ as we know it proclaimed today. And that's what's supposed to be encouraging for us, is that we could be saying, has God's word failed? Has his promises not been kept? And is all of this persecution painfully unnecessary? The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 32, And what more shall I say from time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets? It's interesting that list of people you can see there that we have primarily judges. And then we also have King David and then the prophet Samuel. And then all of the other prophets. And what we basically can glean from this, it's also a technique that Jesus used when he was talking, when it says, when he's pointing to the prophets and the law, that he's talking about all of God's word is basically the accounting of the things that the Lord has done and all pointing to him and Jesus Christ. And it's the writer to the Hebrews is kind of doing the same thing, that all of these stories is again showing their faith in a promise. And we see all of this wonderful fulfillment of promise through these people. And it's an interesting list of people also because they leave out people like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. Because Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, one of the things that's very uniquely different about them than what's in this particular list, and you can kind of maybe dwell on it a little bit, is that the people on the list that is mentioned here there's weakness in those stories. Every one of these particular people, there's an accounting of people who many times did really well, but also had doubts and weakness and sin and failure. We have a, a tremendous story with Gideon where tremendous odds. Again, we know that the Lord, that the Lord purposely he went from 30,000 people to 300 people against about 100 and something thousand people of the Midianites. And God was like showing off. He, they had 30,000 people. And he's like, what's this? We're going to knock out 20,000 because they're going to be afraid. <laughs> and then we're going to leave with the ones that are left over. I'm not even going to be happy with performing my wonder with the 10,000, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this kind of, I'm going to tell you to do this weird thing about how you drink water. <laughs> and whoever drinks water a certain way, I'm going to narrow it down. And he, and he was left with 300 people to go against the Midianites. And God brings victory. It says here in the particular passage, it says that they were made strong out of weakness. Right in the middle of all of this victory of conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, obtaining promises, stopping the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
And women receive back their dead by resurrection. Here in the midst of all of this victorious thing, we see that there's tremendous weakness. Even landing there with the women receiving back their dead from resurrection, alluding to the story of Elijah and Elisha. And we know that Elijah was at a place of tremendous weakness after he saw the resurrection of one that was dead. That he thought he was alone in this fight, totally alone, and thought he was just as good as dead. We see him faltering to some degree in his strength and trusting the Lord as he is being chased by Jezebel. And he's in fear as well. These are people that had tremendous faith, but these were people who were weak. These were people who could not do these things in of their own strength. The highlighting point here is not that Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, they were stronger than them. It just doesn't give you an account of that. Is that we are reminded of the weaknesses. We are reminded of the weaknesses of even Samuel, who we can see through his own sons, drop the ball somewhere. And how he led and parented his own sons. Definitely can see the weakness on someone that you would think that would get as many verses as Moses and Abraham, David. He's kind of just thrown in this particular list, not to diminish the things that the Lord had done. But we see a list of weak people that God used to fulfill his promises. So when we start looking at the people and we see the faltering of God's people, it's not for us to question the promises of God at that point. It's to show that we are weak people and that we need the strength of the Lord. A lot of times we want to give up on God because we want to give up on the church because the church is full of weak people. And if we look at all of Scripture, that's one of the main points of all of Scripture is that we are weak. We are sinners that are weak and that we cannot do it on our own. That we have to trust in something other than ourselves. But then we want to start finding fault with God and we want to start questioning God. We want just to see the victories. We're glad of the victories, but what about all these weak people? And we see that God delights in the showing off through weak people. So even though those particular verses are showing all the great victories, what we're actually seeing here is the power of God to keep his promises with the people of God, even in the midst of our weakness. But then we go on and we see that it's not just a matter of weak people being able to enjoy the blessed victories of God, but we see that it's God's people participating in the persecution and the hate from the world toward God. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, this was starting to get really close to home to these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, as even in their time and in their age, that kind of persecution was amongst them as they were beginning to put Christians in the skins of animals and put them in auditoriums so that they could be the amusement of haters of God as they were tortured and killed. 
We're not seeing that precisely today, but we are seeing that it is amusement in our world, in our country, a country that is sometimes has been or sometimes still is considered to be a Christian country where it is amusement to mock Christians in their weakness. And the sad thing is, is that as a church sometimes, the church even participates in that same mocking, at least mocking the principles and the promises and the proclamations of God. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They lose their homes. They lose their names. They lose everything that they have. And that's been the calling of Christians, the calling of God's people for really a long time is basically what we get out of this. And it says here that in verse 39, that all of these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. You know, a lot of times we make fun of the prosperity gospel that we see. It's really rampant right now in Africa where it's like, well, if you trust in God, you'll be rich and you'll be wealthy and you'll have, you know, you'll be healed from all of your sicknesses. And we kind of like, oh, that's so foolish. But I find that in even here in what people would say maybe reform camps and what we would say more conservative Christian groups and people who may say, okay, that kind of stuff is foolish. We know that you're not going to, it's not a get rich quick kind of scheme. And a lot of those kind of people are scheming people. And we have it, we have it rampant in America. I'm not just, I'm saying it's growing rapidly in Africa, but we have it. We're the ones who started the fire over here. This whole idea that, you know, everything's going to be just fine if you just trust the Lord. We do the same kind of thing that we think we're just going to have whatever, whatever it is that we really want our life to look like. You know, we want things to be, we want to have good jobs, we want to have nice homes, we want to have maybe even here in this beautiful paradise that we have with Mendota. Like, well, if we are Southwest Virginia and Northeast Tennessee, when you go to other places, you see what kind of paradise we have. And we're like, if we, if we obey the Lord and just do everything right, everything's going to just be perfect. You know, we don't mind being living in a cabin and we don't need the, you know, get rich quick kind of thing. Where we're all wealthy and, and we don't need, you know, we're, we know that we're going to be sick sometime, but we get this idealistic kind of mindset of what it is to be a Christian. And it's really the same sin. It's just that our idols are not as flamboyant. <laughs> Maybe we've learned not to be all concerned about being rich, but it doesn't match this particular package that we see here that is the calling of really Christianity, true Christianity, those who are in Christ, that it's going to hurt, that there's going to be difficulty and pain, that this world, we know that this world does not trust the Lord. So why do we think that we're going to get off easy? When we think about it, we have the same appetites as the Israelites did, as they wanted to go back to Egypt. They may not want it to be slaves, but can we just not have a nice meal of garlic and leeks and just have peace here? We don't, you know, all this other stuff of having to trust God and go through the wilderness and deal with difficulty, I, I'm not really down with that. That's just a little too much. Can't we have our freedom, have our cake and eat it too? And so when we start looking at God and how he lays things out, we start questioning God and we go back to the same kind of questions as like 
you know, some of this is not making sense. You know, you, we've been waiting for a long time. Didn't Jesus die? And didn't he raise from the grave? And isn't he ascended into heaven? What's taking so long? Why do we have to put up with all of this? You know, Lord, just take us now. I don't want to have to put up with all of the suffering and all of the sin and our culture is getting out of control. And it's just we can't even know what's going to happen to us anymore. I'm just done with this. Can't we just move on? I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pointing any fingers, people. This is how I feel about things right now. Like, Lord, come on, let's just wrap this thing up. And then when it starts to get difficult, when you start to actually follow the Lord and you start doing the particular things that he tells you to do, you find yourself maybe running into opposition and you find yourself in difficulty. You, you know, if you go and try to help somebody and you try to reach out to people about the Lord, then you have conflict. And then you try to go to church and you're trying to be a part of a study together or try to be a, a unified body in the Lord. And then you start, you know getting on each other's nerves, and, and it, they're, they're, they are sinners, you know, and, and, and we're sinners, and we're all trying to get along and try to do things. That, I was like, you know what? It would be better if I just didn't go to church so I don't have to deal with those kind of people. I don't want to have to deal with sinners like me. I only have to deal with myself as it is. But when we start following the basic principles of what God tells us to do and we see in his word, that we hold on to Christ and that we enter into his worship with faithfulness, that we hold on to our confession without wavering, meaning not to be given in to our appetites, but to obey the Lord selflessly and to actually move forward to people, God's people, and to actually particularly reach out to people outside of God's people to invite them to come into your mess. It's like, hey, what a great idea. We're a really messy group of sinners trying to get along. Let's go get more sinners and bring them into the mess too. It'll be great. We'll just make a big wreck of everything. That seems kind of foolish. It doesn't seem like the way of victory. It doesn't seem like a post-resurrection lifestyle. It doesn't seem like a post-exodus kind of of lifestyle, But what the writer to the Hebrews here is telling us is that there is a purpose in continuing to trust the Lord in the midst of this difficulty as we remain in this flesh that we don't have to have court hearings against God saying, why did you do this? This doesn't make any sense. How can you blame us? When we're having to deal with all of this weakness, we are reminded of Romans chapter 9. It says, why does he still find fault with us when we're dealing with this kind of mess? Of this sin that's still stuck in us. Why can't we just wrap this up? But God answers that question. We see in Romans 9, 9, 19 through 25, it says, you will say to me, this is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. It says, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But then Paul responds, but who are you, old man, to answer back God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So the first response that Paul gives to the church or anyone who would bring that kind of question up is like, well, if God made things the way it is and it's not our fault that things are, you know, that I sin or, you know, things go bad. And he's like, number one, God is God. And see, that gets us back to at least Rahab is beyond our understanding there. He, Rahab knew that God was God. And so Paul responds, 
He's the potter. He has rights over the clay. But then look at the second thing that Paul explains about God. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, for which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her, Rahab, who was not beloved, I've added the Rahab part, just as a kind of emphasis, I will now call beloved. See what the writer of the Hebrews is doing here? The very first two sentences there, it seems really quaint. We're just running through real quick. We've got Jericho, we've got Rahab, we're moving on and on. No, no, right there in just those two particular, well, one story there, those two particular verses is the whole purposes of what God is doing. That he's given victory to his people, he's keeping the promises for his people, and he's continuing to save a people that were not his people. And guess what? That's us. <laughs> That what we see here is that the writer to the Hebrews is saying they went through all of this in Lord's plan so that he could get to you. And to continue to get to people that he has already prepared beforehand. So guess what? That means we get to participate with this great cloud of witnesses in the same kind of sufferings that they have been called to. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 5 echoes the same thing. As he's wrapping it up, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. This is Peter, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You ever hear people talk like that? You ever think that way yourself? It's like, you know, it's just it's the same old junk. It's the same old mess. What's Jesus up to? What's going on? Peter responds, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. But the heavens existed long ago. Again, God is God. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And then fast forwarding to verse 8, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count as slowness, but is patient Toward you, not wishing that any should perish and that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved 
and the earth away and the works that were done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus be dissolved, what sort of people ought you ought to be? Excuse me. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth and the righteous, in which righteousness dwells. We see that all of this, that the difficulty of persecution, what seems to be a delay is not a delay from God. What sometimes seems to be faltering of people is not the end of his promises, but that he has a purpose for continuing to save his people just like you, because God desires that none of his that he has written from beforehand in the Lamb's book of life are to perish. And he's not going to stop until everybody is accounted for. Because he's going to leave no one behind. So where is that us for us today? Are you willing to be a Rahab? Are you willing to be an Isaiah? Elijah, would you like to be a part of this hall of faith? You know, you wonder sometimes, is there going to be more records later on that we can go back to and just kind of remind ourselves of the stories of the last 2,000 years of Christianity and whatever amount of time is to come? Where would your names be in that narrative? Do you want to be the one that says, I'm going to do it? But you don't do it, like the one son that Dave read about this morning. We have the encouragement that we can even be the ones that says, I'm not going to do it. But then as the Lord works on our hearts, exposes our weaknesses, the weaknesses like those in the hall of faith. And then with repentance and faith, we go ahead and do it. We trust the Lord. We get to be used in the continuation of the building of the kingdom of God. I am not going to stand here with some great boldness and arrogance to say, I want to be in the hall of faith. I want to do it. I want to be that. I want to say that. It doesn't take much for me to say, okay, I'll do it. Let's do it. Let's have kids. Let's have a church. Let's take on a foster kid. Jennifer and I are often, I to pull her into this, we're often willing to throw in the towel so many times because we are so weak. And the only thing I can tell you is that the Lord's promise is being fulfilled that the Lord's people are continuing And all of this difficulty and suffering has a purpose. And we can trust him because Jesus has already taken on the fullness of that wrath. He's already taken on the fullness of the suffering. It's not because it's just God's way of doing things. Is that for us to be like Maharu said today, are we Christians or are we in Christ? And if Christ abides in us, Christ tells us very clearly then take up your, it doesn't say take up your pillow. (laughs) 
doesn't say take up your camp chair and follow me. doesn't say take up whatever it is that's your nice little comfort thing. What does he say to take up? Your cross. And so if we are continuing to follow him and to follow the cross, we too must hold tightly to that cross and all that it entails, knowing that it will come to an end. There is victorious glory in the end. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. (laughs) It's so difficult, Father, preaching to these people to tell them that they need to embrace suffering. I don't want to embrace it. I like comfort. I don't like to be scorned, embarrassed, to hurt. Father, I don't like to be alone. We see Joshua and Caleb as great heroes. They were the only two that went from one stage to the next. But nothing, no one has ever experienced the loneliness like your son did on the cross. So help us, Father, to embrace the cross, to cling to the cross, to hope in the cross and all that it entails. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us sing and let us praise the Lord for all of his mighty and wondrous gifts.